this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I talk to the Catholic behind the account. Today I'm speaking with Christopher Buckley, who was a poet, among uh, many things that he is. And today he's going to give us some information about his faith journey, his conversion story to the Catholic Church, and give us some information on uh, his passion for poetry. So thank you for coming through and uh, giving us this crucial information uh, today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Efren. I appreciate it. It's a real treat to be here. Yep. So I'm familiar with Christopher through his, um, uh, I guess, his advocacy and his passion for justice, justice that I see on social media frequently. And I think that's vital, vitally important, you know, as a member of uh, the body of Christ that we always speak up and advocate for uh, our brothers and sisters across the globe because we're in solidarity. And I think uh, Christopher does a, a good job at that. So I said, hey, uh, I'm sure he has a really cool passion and, and he has a really good conversion story. So I reached out and I'm glad he came through. So uh, yeah, let's get started. So I noticed, or you told me that you were a convert to the Catholic Church. So give us your, your faith journey. Like what was your early life? middle and how to lead you to now sort of thing. Well, you bet. Sure thing. Um, well, I did convert as an adult. Um, I grew up Methodist in the United Methodist Church in uh, California in the East Bay. And uh, I see it all as a, um, as a continuum. You know, I, I became a Catholic because I was a Methodist first. And the things that I learned as a Methodist are the things that when I began exploring for kind of a deeper connection to Christianity beyond the faith that I grew up in, ultimately led me to the Catholic faith. Um, specifically, I would, the, one of the elements that I think, um, that I think started me off on that journey is, the Methodist Church has a long tradition of um, of social of what what we call the social gospel uh, and the idea of um, holiness is something that is lived out and that as a people called to serve Christ, we are looking to embody that holiness in very practical ways beyond just uh, the profession of faith. My church. And let me give you an example of what I meant and why that kind of stuck and why that mirrors Catholicism for me. As a child, the church that I grew up in, I grew up in a town in the East San Francisco Bay where uh, a national laboratory has been built that is uh, the laboratory where all of the United States nuclear weapons program was designed for decades. And my church was about five blocks from there. And most of the folks that I went to church with um, were often nuclear physicists, you know, who were brilliant engineers and scientists, but also people of faith at the same time. And very, you know, in a grappling way, working on weapons of mass destruction, you know, and my, my family was not from that, you know, we were, you know, kind of blue collar folks. And, um, but the point is, church was a place where the life of the mind the life of the spirit, asking hard questions, thinking through moral implications of one's livelihood, one's work. That was just part of what it meant to be Christian. And every year on Good Friday, there was a large peace demonstration that would march from the conquered naval shipyards and across the Bay Area. And that would end up with an interfaith group of witnesses protesting in front of the, the gates of the lab and 
taking part in civil disobedience and, and being arrested for that, that, that stance. They had a strong stance of demilitarization. Now, my church was made up mostly of the folks whose jobs they wanted to shut down. And my church was the one that those same people offered hospitality to. We invited the protesters to camp on our church lawn. They would stay there. We would feed them breakfast. And then they would go and get arrested, you know, shutting down the gates the next day. That wasn't a contradiction. You know, that was the faith. You know, of course we will do this. Even the people here who stand perhaps in opposition to you on this point are here to bless you and be blessed by you. So thank you. Um, and that really stuck with me because as I grew older, I, I went into seminary myself in that tradition. Um, at that time, my interest was very much in becoming a hospital chaplain as a Methodist uh, minister. And as I began exploring my, my faith, that grounding uh, in that contradiction of justice and mercy together um, as an expression of what you believe on the inside, um, I was looking for ways to really feel like I was being honest to that. What I found was that the more that I studied Methodist church history and the teachings of its founder, John Wesley, the more it kept pointing me back to Catholic sources. Um, the more it was talking about things that Protestants as a whole weren't talking about in those terms. They were talking about sanctification. They were talking about sacraments. They were talking about the communion of saints and entire sanctification of the person through lived holiness. And, and what eventually happened is I began looking at the Catholic Church as the, the wellspring out of which all of these different Christian traditions were, were springing. Um, there's a thing when you're a Protestant and you're searching that perhaps some of your listeners may, may, uh, may recognize when you're searching, you start trying to find the right denomination. The idea that there's like out there, there's this one tribe of your people. And if you can just find your people, then your faith life is complete. The conflict goes away and it all settles down. And it was a professor in seminary who told me, no, that's not the way it works. You, you just got to pick which of the 10 plagues of Egypt you're most comfortable living with. And when you find that, just know you're choosing that plague, you know, and, and, and you know, maybe it's frogs, maybe it's boils, but, you know, one of them, that's, that's your passion. Um, and that didn't, that didn't sit right with me, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that was very disappointing. So I, I, I began looking and what I found is in that rich world of seminary, it was, I was starting to respond to more liturgical ways of prayer and liturgical ways of worship beyond just what I got on Sunday as a Methodist. And eventually that led me, I, I, I thought, ah, okay, I'll become an Episcopalian. A lot of us former Protestants who become Catholic have a youthful indiscretion through the Episcopal church. Um, so I became Episcopalian for the liturgy. But I found that after many years there, it wasn't liturgy. It wasn't worship style. It was something that the liturgy was trying to convey. I realized that I came for liturgy, but what I was looking for was sacraments. And the more I began really taking seriously the writing, the scriptural evidence, the writing of the church fathers, it just became very clear to me, oh, for sacraments, I need bishops. <laughs> and and bishops that have a line of succession to Christ our Lord in real time. 
And as uncomfortable as it was for me, um, I had to very seriously look at the Catholic Church as the source from which bishops and sacraments come to us through apostolic witness and the life of the apostles. Um, and, uh, and so I, I began slowly converting, and it was a very long journey of more than a decade, decade and a half. I think I did RCIA two or three times, you know, and it began uh, each time convincing me I could never, ever, you know, compromise you know, my, my beliefs and become Catholic, you know, that, 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 that there were barriers to what I thought I believed and what I thought was important to my belief. And I would go away and yet it wouldn't go away. You know, something else in my faith life would say, ah, that comes from Catholicism, give it another look, you know? And uh, eventually in 2005, I, uh, I, I, uh, I didn't go away after my third time at RCIA. And I said, no, the time is right. There are things that I, I can't quite wrap my head and heart around yet, but I have to have faith that I will find my way in it. You know, and and uh, so I uh, was confirmed uh, Catholic in Easter Vigil of 2005, and have been there since. Well, thank you for sharing that information. And it seems like a lot of moving parts <laughs> happened in your conversion story to the Catholic Church. And you mentioned, you know, you studying the early church and the church fathers, and ultimately through your, you know, navigation through Protestantism everything had its root source in the Catholic church. So my next question is, um, is there a teaching or a person that you noticed or read about or something along the way that helped, that has like impacted and influenced you a lot? Uh, so many, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll have to start of course with my, uh, you know, with my own family and the fact that I, I came from a family that practiced the faith. Um, you know, we were practicing Christians and, and with a great variety in it. So I got a chance to see and feel a lot of different ways of being Christian as a youth. Um, I had a good pastor who encouraged faith and conscience, you know, uh, at an early age. I had really great professors in school, um, Robert Gregg uh, at Stanford, who was the dean of Stanford chapels, and James Sanders, the late James Sanders, who was a, a wonderful Old Testament theologian that I studied with in seminary, who just died about two weeks ago, and that, which really made me sad. He was a brilliant, kind, caring man, and uh, wrote a book that I come back to every now and then, Torah and Canon. Um, but I think a couple of things that really, folks that really um, made an important connection to me was uh, one when I was going through sort of a, a crisis of faith as a seminarian uh, and was really questioning, was this not just was I right for the ministry? It was, am I even right in the right religion? You know, is, is Christianity there or am I just fooling myself? Um, if you haven't been through one of those, don't worry, you will at some point. And, um, and it's important to know it's, it's part of the life of faith. Um, I went to a retreat center at um, Valermo, California, which is the uh, St. Andrew's Abbey in Southern California, and I was just not in a good space. But I, as I came in late and the community and the, the brothers were already gathering for their noonday meal, I met a, uh, a monk there by the name of Brother Peter. He didn't 
we didn't even say two words together. But um, he was uh, he was an old and very frail um, uh, Chinese friar, and as he just sat across from me at the table, and he his job was to take the water jug and fill my glass. And I noticed that when he did, and his sleeve slipped up, his arm was horribly emaciated. There was no muscle tissue or tendon left in his arm. He could barely work it. And so I talked to some of the others afterward. I said, what, you know, who, who was it that was serving me? And they said, this is Brother Peter. He was one of our, our members in, in China when we were a missionary society. Um, and when our, when our community had to leave uh, during the Cultural Revolution, he was one of the, uh, the the members who was arrested and has been kept in prison and had been a torture victim uh, for years until decades, uh, literally chained to a wall with no circulation to his arm, uh, which eventually cost him that, that mobility in his arm. And when he got out, his his community had been advocating, trying to secure his freedom. When he got out, I think in the 1980s, the one thing he wanted to do was rejoin his community. And that is his ministry now, is his job is to pour the water for the, the guests when they come there. And I was so blown away by the simplicity of that. I mean, it was like literally this kind of St. Francis moment of somebody who, for whom the faith was so unquestionably there that even after all that horrible suffering, couldn't give up on it, wouldn't give up on it. They just needed to find their way back to it. That was what I wanted. You know, that was what I needed to find somewhere in this world. And okay, if he can find that in the Catholic church, then I can take a look at that too. So I always come back to him in that time that I spent there, even though we never said two words, he wouldn't know me. He has no idea that he's made this, you know, this major impact in my life, but it was, it was a, it was a very important witness. I think another was a pilgrimage I made as a Methodist to, yeah, after starting that, that quest, I, I did make a pilgrimage to uh, the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City with some Methodist and, and Catholics on a joint uh, mission down there. And that was the first time that I ever truly encountered Mary um, as a Christian, because as a Protestant, Mary's not a thing. You know, she's, she's, yes, she, she was the mother of our Lord, but she was, you know, I'm using our framework, just Jesus's mother. You know, why do you make such a big deal out of her? Um, and that was, you know, that's an obstacle as a Protestant, you have to find your way around that map. And um, the presence of Mary as our common mother in the faith is so visceral in that basilica and amongst the pilgrims who are going to see her there. It's very much the same kind of witness that I had from Brother Peter. When you see the people making pilgrimage there to say thanks, um, to offer some sort of penance and gratitude for a favor that Our Lady has done for them, you cannot go away and just see it anthropologically. There's someone there and she is real and she is reaching out and she is leading us to something beyond her to someone beyond her which is which is jesus so i would say brother peter and the virgin of guadalupe were foundational thank you for sharing that very powerful 
story that you shared about visiting uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe in the Basilica, uh, very empowering. Uh, so you're a convert to the Catholic Church. What is something that you would say to somebody who is discerning or, you know, reading about, like, wanting to become yeah, Catholic? Yeah, good, good question. Um, a couple of things, you know, take your time and be patient. When God's ready for you, you'll be ready for God, too. Um, but listen to it and do the work and um, know that it is going to feel a little lonely, especially if you are an established Christian and have gotten used to a particular way of doing church and, and people with whom to do church. You get an awful lot. In my case, I didn't even have a lot of negative messages about Catholics. It was just the general, you know, the, the general protest of Protestantism against what we think of as papal authority, the way we think of the role of the Bible. Um, you got to know what it is. Identify for yourself what it is that you, you, what is it that is keeping you from converting right now? I mean, I, I flipped the question around. Why aren't you Catholic already? It was the first branch of Christianity. Christianity is obviously very important to me. Why am I not Catholic then? Why not just go straight to the root? And being able to understand what are those obstacles, what are those specific um, ducks that I got to knock down in the shooting gallery before I can feel like I can go home. Um, be honest with yourself about what they are, know what they are, do the work to figure out what they are, and then do the work to like see if they're actually real ducks or are these just false messages, misinterpretations that have been presented to us, whether you know, whether maliciously or not, by our own faith tradition. You know, um, just pay attention to it. Do the work. Know what it is. Um, and then, ironically, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, in contrast, hurry up. <laughs> you know, actually do it. Don't just sit there studying. God doesn't need you to study the faith. He needs us to practice it. And if it is right, and you are looking at those ducks, um, and you can start knocking some of them over, um, go to your parish, start in on RCIA, or if you're at school, go to a Newman Society somewhere and, and, and start RCIA. Don't do this alone. That's only going to get you so far. And uh, that would be my advice. Well, next, uh, and thank you for sharing that two good pointers that can definitely aid somebody in their search for truth. Um, so let's go to the next part. You know, at the beginning, I mentioned that you are, you wrote, you write poetry, you consider yourself a poet, then you have a book called Bluing. Um, so the question is, you know, what influenced you to start writing poetry? Well, I always sort of just dabbled in writing uh, in, in school. I mean, I think we all have to like write a haiku in fifth grade or something at, at some point. Um, but I didn't really make it, you know, a, a hobby an avocation until I was, until I was in seminary in my twenties. Um, and then it was during my chaplaincy that I had a very powerful visit with a, a, a patient who was dying and came away afterward and, and the only thing I could think to do with it was to start 
journaling about it, and that journaling became a poem. And I shared it with one of the other chaplains who herself was interested in in poetry and, and kind of worked. And she we read it and talked about it together. And she said, "You're a poet." And I said, "Really? Huh? Okay." But that kind of sunk in. I didn't do anything with it for maybe another ten years after I had ended chaplaincy and decided that wasn't where my life was taking me. But when I was when I was then single and finding my way in a secular career uh, in San Francisco, I began writing very intentionally and writing poetry and trying to, uh, to explore that. Um, um, you know, I, I, some of the pieces that are in the, the little chat book that you mentioned, uh, Bluing, that I had published a couple of years ago from Finishing Line Press. Some of them are pieces that began during that period that are reflections on my life and faith as I was living in, in San Francisco. Some of them um, some of them are from this time now where I, I live in Seattle. Uh, I moved here about five, six years ago with my, with my family. I've been living here since. And it's really since that move in the last five or six years that it's become a uh, I've, I've kind of got critical mass there. You know, there's this combination here that was even different than what was in San Francisco. There's this combination here of being a very active city of literature. Seattle is one of only two United Nations designated cities of literature in the United States. You know, the other being um, Iowa City. And uh, um, it means that it's very easy to find people to, you know, places to read poetry with others, places to write. Um, and, uh, and the internet now has developed in such a way that it also makes it a lot easier to find places to submit your work and to try to find opportunities to get published. And so that, that kind of combination of, of factors uh, all came together to create what turned out to be, oh, I, I can actually create a body of work. You know, this is something I can do in my spare time. And, uh, um, and so I did. Sounds like a really good hobby that you have. Um, so next, you know, as Catholics, we have this huge body and 2000 year worth of tradition of, you know, good and beautiful writing from various authors and theologians. Uh, how have you managed to capture, you know, that tradition of good and beauty in your poem? Well, I'm probably a little bit different than some of of who's out there, and uh, and I and I'll be honest, you know, I wasn't I wasn't trained in poetry. Um, I came to it as a as a hobby, you know. So I'm only now still kind of developing the vocabulary that and I'm lucky to have some really good teachers emerging out of this circle um, uh, taking a workshop from a man named Paul Nelson who's a very important bioregional poet here also uh, Dr. Georgia McDade of the African American Writers Association here um, holds very uh, very vibrant open mics for the entire community here and it, what I'm able to listen to and learn from her and from that circle reading together is, is very formative. This specifically in, in Catholic uh, circles, when you hear people talking about Catholic letters, you very often are hearing, you know, people talking, you know, about poets like, like uh, Cardinal Newman and, and, um, and Joyce Kilmer, um, you know, who wrote the, 
the, the famous tree poem, I think that I shall never see a thing as lovely as a tree, et cetera. Um, you know, they look at novelists like Chesterton and, and Tolkien. And, but what we miss is that there's this, there's this other side of Catholic poetry that isn't about kind of the greeting card verse. I, I don't want to don't dismiss it. Catholics essentially invented modern poetry. Um, people are going to you know, do a spit take when they hear me say that. But, you know, in the 1800s, there were two important voices that completely turned rhyming verse upside down. One of them in the U.S. was Walt Whitman, who wrote Leaves of Grass and kind of got rid of rhyming verse, turned into open verse and and um, and uh, and adopted the rhythms of the Psalms of the King James Bible. You know, that was essentially how he wrote Leaves of Grass. But in England, it was Gerard Manley Hopkins, a Jesuit priest who was the most important modern poet, I would argue. He is somebody who had a different way of seeing what poems were. He talked about, um, he talked about the inner process of seeing the reality of God in the world. He called that the inscape. And the job of the poet was to give that inscape something he called in stress, the, 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 the shape in words that only the poet can see of God's reality behind things. And he wrote in what he called sprung rhythm, which essentially means he got rid of all of the, the, the iambic pentameter that everybody wrote in in the Victorian era. da 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 and he he adopted the sound of of anglo-saxon common speech and his poems sound like nothing else that is being written at that time um you know it 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 doesn't have a set meter it doesn't have a set rhyme it's very difficult to read and you would think it was like a beat poet you know from the 50s if you were reading it but it was a jesuit priest in 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 stodgy old england um, that tradition is one that strangely is more important for Catholic writers than a lot of what we think of as, as Catholic poets. It's that tradition that gives us writers like Brother Antoninus, the, the, the famous beat poet in 1950s San Francisco, who was a um, Dominican uh, tertiary. Uh, you know, it would show up in his habit at beat poet readings with Allen Ginsberg and people like that. People like Seattle's Denise Levertov, herself a, a, um, a convert, you know, from Anglicanism and, and from a, a Jewish family. And she goes in exactly the same place that Gerard Manley Hopkins does. And she writes about, you know, being able to reveal the form that that the form is only a the revelation of content, something that the that the poet themselves sees with the the eyes of God's truth and has it feels moved to bring into words to share with other people. In a sense, poetry is kind of evangelism in that sense. You know, it's it's being aware of some truth and being so moved by that truth that you have to write it down in some way to kind of capture the way it feels and sees in here so that somebody else can maybe experience it the way that you do. And that's really the Catholic gift, I think, in, in poetry. It's incarnation when you think of it in that sense. You know, the, the difference between Catholic anything and Protestant anything is this focus on incarnation. As a Protestant, Christ is 
a good moral example. We call him the son of God, but he's, he's a good guy and we're supposed to be like him. Catholicism is much more literal in that sense. No, no. We say he's the son of God because he is, he is God incarnate. And everything that God wants to say about God's own self, he is in Jesus. So look and see what that is. That's kind of what you, you apply that to poetry and you kind of see the difference too. It's not just putting the faith out in nice rhymy words to try to lead people to some dogmatic truth. It's about seeing something about Christ unseen in the world and then trying, like he himself is word, trying to use your words to make that word real uh, so that others can, can feel it. What an, what an enriching um, aspect of poetry. I never thought of it like that before. And the way you, you say it, I can definitely sense, you know, the the idea of the of incarnation. Wow, that is that is really remarkable. <laughs> so in your book, uh, Bluing, or just in your own personal, uh, you know, hobby space, is there a particular poem that you like? And uh, why do you like that poem so much? There's one that I'm especially proud of. And since you asked about it in Bluing, it is in Bluing. I, I wanted to look back over it. Um, there's one there called Flicker. And it I think does a, a lot of what I was just talking about there in a, one nice tight little package. Um, it's responding to a moment that moved me to speech, specifically a moment of having moved to Seattle, moving to a completely different environment. There's different plants, there's different animals, there's, you know, different water here. And, um, and what did that mean? And why was God bringing me here? And what does that mean for me and my family and everything? And then it's, it's trying to observe that pattern underneath and letting the word say what it's trying to say to me on the page. And all of that is, I'm trying to do with that kind of surprised mind of observing this, this new bioregion that I called home. It was called Flicker which is a kind of bird, I should say. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of bird that did not live in California where I came from, but does live here. And I was so surprised by it when I saw it in my backyard, I had to learn more about it, hence this poem. Flicker. It is simpler to write of God than of the songs his birds can sing. He at least is one, and they so very many. Only in these last times do they astound, having sounded nameless all the days of my life. Moving now, late in my season, all the birds are strange, and stop me on the street with urgent calls I cannot afford to ignore. These are not my childhood birds. No mere blackbirds or dull, uncrested jays. These are someone else's ordinary. All flit and titter, dark-breasted and many. Others, unrevealing, haunt me from some not-too-distant eve, so I look away and live. And falling short of Adam's charge, I have named only one, a faithful visitor and clever, the flicker, a woodpecker, wise enough to toil in the dust of the earth and not the trees, long-billed and speckled like soiled ermine, 
and totally unremarkable in its song. To me, that really was a poem about feeling unfamiliar, feeling led into a new place, into a, um, a new part of my life. There's very much, you know, my passage into middle age is, is there. But then also being open to the newness there and things that would seem very ordinary to somebody who had always been there birds that are just everybody else's background noise to me are small wonders when I see them in the backyard. And um, there, was, uh, there was something about that that was a great symbol for what was going on. And, and I, going to your earlier questions, I, I see that as, as kind of the challenge of somebody exploring the Catholic faith too. There's so much there that is invisible to anyone who's grown up amongst it. And part of the gift of the convert is being able to see things perhaps in a different way or to see things that go unnoticed um, in the liturgy, in the life, um, in the tradition, in the teachings, in the, the writings that we have access to. Um, things that are just routine for everybody else, but hey, wow, that's really a neat practice. Where does that come from? What does that do? How do I make that part of who I am? What do we, why are we doing it that way? You know, and what, how does that bring our spirit to life uh, in God when we do? Um, it all kind of comes together for me in that piece. So thank you for asking me to share it. Thank you for uh, taking the time out to, to read your, your poem for us. I really appreciate um, you enriching us uh, with, your, with your work. So my last question is this, how do you insert your Catholic faith into poetry? Well, like I said, it is, it is something incarnational, you know, it is especially in a time where we have to play it so close to home um, in order to show care to one another, to keep each other safe um, and, and alive. Um, there is something about being able to write and read poetry from an, an honest place, an honest statement that, that is ultimately loving for other people. Some of my poetry is kind of angry social justice poetry. Some of my poetry is kind of warm, nostalgic. Um, but all of it is me, whether it's in the voice of the prophets of Israel or whether it's something more more comforting in, in you know, the, the spirit of the moment. Um, all of it is an attempt to try to tell God's truth in the way that it's being shown to me with the words that I have, because I can't be out there fixing the things that upset me in the world. I can't, you know, I, not only can I not make the nuclear weapons go away, going back to our first story at the beginning, right now I can't even go out and sit in front of the gates um, and being able to use poetry as a, as a voice, hopefully to amplify others who are doing the work in the real world um, or to at least honor them um, is, is, is important. And I also try to take that idea of incarnation very seriously when I'm writing um, you know, poems like Flicker 
they don't try to teach Catholicism. They just try to be a, a, be a transparent Christian and to show what that is under the hood. You know, Flickr was about mortality and aspiration and, and newness. Um, you know, I've written another another one um, recently around you know kind of social doctrine and the common good and what does it mean to to be a a good society again, you know, and that, that was published differently. It wasn't a seven piece treatise on Catholic social doctrine. It was just, you know, a, an attempt to write about what, what's missing from our common life. So, so just trying to be writing from a Catholic awareness, but in a way that anyone can uh, connect to, like I said, it's in, in a sense, it's a, it's a form of evangelism, um, but hopefully one that isn't beating anybody over the head and chasing them away more than bringing them in. Yeah, I definitely see what you mean. And I like the way that you sneak in those Christian truths into your writing or the way you describe it. It seems it sounds like you managed to sneak and evangelize through your writing in subtle, small ways. So that's always good to do. Uh, well, yeah, I definitely appreciate you coming through and, um, you know, sharing with us, you know, your faith journey and your conversion story to the Catholic Church and giving us some information about why and how you got involved in poetry. And you read that beautiful poem to us. And I definitely appreciate you, you know, blessing us with that, with that vital uh, poem from your collection called Blueing. Uh, well, let's go conclude this interview, and I just definitely thank you for uh, coming today and, um, you know, sharing uh, sharing with us the wisdom that you have to offer. 